It is good to see every single last one of you uh, this Easter morning. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I just want to extend my brief but sincere welcome to each and every single one of you, especially those of you who are guests with us this morning, if it's your first time with us. So glad that you are here with us this morning. Um, Let me just, by way of that, also say that if you are a guest with us this morning, or even if coming to something like this is relatively new for you, maybe it's been a while since you've come to a church service like this, or maybe you've never been before, you came with someone that invited you, let me just take a little brief moment to explain to you what we're doing, what we're about to do. Uh, We are about to to spend a segment of our time together, really kind of the bulk of our time together, uh, reading from the Bible and teaching from the Bible. Uh, with confidence that God, uh, by His Spirit and His power, will take the foolishness of my words that are trying to explain His Word and use them uh, to help us see His glory, to see His greatness, uh, to trust Him and to know Him. This is what we do every single week. So we're going to read some of the Bible together, and I'm going to teach from the Bible for the next little while. Uh, For the last few months, we've actually been working our way through uh, the first segment of the Bible called the Old Testament as we are trying to trace our hands over the overarching story of the entire Bible. The Bible is 66 books kind of all bound together, but though they are all different, written by numerous authors from numerous countries over a period of a couple of centuries, they all together tell one great story. And like tributaries feeding into a single river, they all feed into this one great drama, this one great story. And we're calling that drama or story the drama of redemption. And this morning, instead of trying to catch all of us up with what we've seen so far in the story, I want to take us all back to the one fundamental universal question or tension that this story or this drama is unpacking for us. And, And here it is. How can a God who is holy infinitely pure, self-professed, holy, and just, just in all of his ways and his character. How can a holy and just God save sinful or rebellious, disinterested, disrespectful people like you and I? How can a holy and just God save sinners like you and I who are due nothing but his judgment? This is the underlying tension, the fundamental question that this drama of God's redemption is seeking to unpack. And if we're honest, I doubt very few of you actually came in this morning thinking that the fundamental question of the universe, the most fundamental tension of the universe was probably not how does a holy God save sinful people like me, like you. Like some of the folk in the first service I joked with, and some of you probably came in with a question of wondering, is Robert going to shave that beard for Easter? I'm surprised by how many people grabbed me this morning and go, oh, I thought you were going to trim it. I just thought for Easter, resurrection, new life, clean face, you're cutting it all off, but... No, no, I haven't quite gotten up the nerve to trim the beard yet, and I don't know when it's coming, but that's actually not the most important question or tension to actually resolve. That's a joke. But if we're honest, again, I think many people, if asked and if honest, would say that the most fundamental question or tension with regards to this word or with this God isn't how can a holy and just God 
in and of himself save sinful people like you and I, if we're really honest, we probably think, who does this God think he is that he can actually judge people like you and I? Who, who does he think he is? But here's the thing, as we've been walking our way through the Bible and just kind of tracing our hand over this story, over this drama, what we've seen is that the Bible asks a completely different question. It doesn't ask, how can God in himself have the right to judge sinners like you and I? The question that has to be answered is, how can God in his holiness, in his purity, in his infinite glory and perfection and in his justice, how can he save sinful people like you and I? See, here's the tension. For God to be infinitely holy, infinitely pure, eternally righteous and just, it means he can't allow any sin to go unpunished. It means he can't make peace with sin and allow it to to remain in his presence. It means that at any point in time, God were to just look over your sin, wink at it, wipe it under the rug, just act like that one little disregard for who he is and his glory doesn't really matter this time then he really wouldn't be infinitely holy. He really wouldn't be righteous and just. In that sense, he's not worthy of our worship. It makes no sense to get up and get dressed, come to an elementary school with hard metal chairs and purple rubber floors, the heat you can't control, and listen to someone talk for a while. He's not worthy of it. But at the same time, If in his holiness and in his justice, he just wiped each and every single one of us out right now, which in a sense, because of our sin, each and every single one of us deserve, what of his love? This whole story, we've been hearing him talk, we've been hearing it declared and we've seen it demonstrated, just how loving. In his own self-description of himself, long-suffering, patient and kind, but at the same time, not willing to let any sin go unpunished. How does that work out? How in the world can he be infinitely holy and just and at the same time loving, long-suffering and patient with you and I in our sin? That is the greatest and most fundamental problem and tension in the entire universe. That is what the drama of redemption is unpacking for us. How is God going to resolve that? How is he going to be completely consistent within himself and demonstrate himself worthy of our worship, worthy of our trust, worthy of our love. And this morning, we are going to look at the answer to that question in the book of Isaiah. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it up to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet, a messenger that God would send to his people in the midst of their deception, in the midst of their hard-heartedness, in the midst of their rebellion, as we've seen over the past few weeks, even while they were being taken captive by foreign nations, even as they were giving themselves over to foreign gods, God was sending messengers or prophets to call his people back to himself, to call his people to turn away from their sin, to turn away from their trust in these false gods and return to God, reminding them of his promises to them, his covenants to them, his promise to be their God and for them to be his people, but at the same time warning them of the consequences of their sin. He would send these prophets and messengers to Israel and Isaiah was one of those such prophets. And and in Isaiah, in particular, chapter 53, we see Isaiah not only in his entire book calling people back to God, but now pointing God's people forward to how God will resolve this tension. How is God gonna resolve this fundamental problem? How is God gonna remain completely just and completely holy, but at the same time loving and long-suffering without compromising any of his character? without compromising anything about himself. Let's, let's look at it in Isaiah chapter 53. 
In fact, now that you're there, I only got you there so I could tell you to go back about three verses. I didn't want to confuse you. So Isaiah chapter 52 is where we'll start, and we'll start in verse 13, and then we'll read all of Isaiah chapter 53. And you can follow along with me here. This is the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which he has not been told to them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him, for, the, for, he, for he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now here's what I want you to do. Put a finger there, put your worship guide there, a little ribbon in your Bible there, and I want you to turn right. Head right in your Bible into the New Testament, in particular to the book of Acts. This is one of the great joys of living in the time that we live in. We get the whole story. We get the full picture. And I want us to look at this chapter in Isaiah along with this story that we find in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. We'll start in verse 26, and I'm just going to read it again to you. And you can follow along, or, and I want you to listen. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And I, I like to remind people relatively often around here, and we don't have a ton of time this morning, so I can't do it a lot today. But when we read the Bible, I always like to remind people to read it like a human. And to read it like a human and to see this story in its full context of humanity, it helps to know just from a few, few, a few paragraphs before that Philip was in the midst of a very fruitful ministry. 
The gospel was being proclaimed. The news of Jesus was being told. People were believing. People were being baptized. People were being healed. Philip's in the midst of this whole thing that we would call a revival. An angel shows up to him. He says, you know what? I know it's going well for you, Philip. I want you to leave. Get up and go. And here's where I want you to go. Not to another place where things are hopping. I want you to go down to this road. It's a desert road. And now I just have to wonder, read it like a human. What must have that angel been like for Philip? In the midst of massive success in what he was doing, an angel of the Lord shows up and says, you know what? I want you to leave and go to a desert road. And Philip just says, okay. One day I'd like to see that angel. I mean, I'd like to know what that was really like. You read it like a human. What was that like? Philip saw it and he listened and he obeyed and and look what happened. He rose and he went. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Come on now, be human again. Leave your ministry, go to a desert road, And now the spirit shows up to Philip. Now, I don't know what that was like either, but it must have been something. One day, I would hope to experience whatever Philip just experienced right here. The spirit of God shows up and says, you know what? I want you to go over to that man. You know, just put yourself in a little bit of context here. You're on Broad Street, five o'clock traffic, bumper to bumper. Some kind of stirring in your soul. You feel like it's the spirit of God. Says, you know what? I want you to walk up to that car, knock on their window, and start talking to that person. That's what's going on for Philip here. Now he's on this desert road and he sees this Ethiopian and the spirit of God shows up and says, you know what, I want you to go up and and talk to him. Verse 30 says, Philip ran to him and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and he asked, what do you, do you understand what you're reading? That's a very good question, Philip. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. See if it sounds familiar to you. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And Philip does something very important. Don't miss what he does now. Philip opened his mouth. Philip responded to this excellent question that the Ethiopian has for him. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, this text in Isaiah, the same one we just read, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. This morning, I want to frame the rest of our time together around three questions, three questions that come from these two texts, three questions hopefully that primarily be answered from that text in Isaiah chapter 53. And here's the first one. Have you ever really considered what God may be weaving together, what God may be orchestrating in your life right here and right now on your behalf? Have you ever really considered what God might be orchestrating in your life for you to be in a place where you, like this Ethiopian eunuch, could hear the good news about Jesus? 
And here's why I ask this question, and here's why I think it's so important. Do you see what God was doing and what God did for this one man? I mean, do you see all that God was orchestrating and the pieces that God was moving around and what God was doing for this one Ethiopian eunuch who had come to Jerusalem to worship and who left still curious but not fully understanding? Do you see what God was weaving together for this one man? He's on a desert road in what was probably a five-month trip back to his home from Jerusalem And he's reading the prophet Isaiah. He's not sure what it means. And an evangelist walks up to his chariot. Do you know what you're reading? You want me to help you? Have you ever considered what God is orchestrating and weaving together in your life right now? In this story, God is orchestrating all of that for one man to meet one other man that he might tell him the good news about Jesus. Here's what I don't want you to miss. Please do not spend another moment in this room thinking that God does not do such things for one person. I think many of us try to make excuses for things by thinking that God is only concerned with certain peoples, certain crises somewhere else out there in in the wide, big, bad world. God really isn't concerned with me, with one person. There are so many greater or more important things in our mind going on in the world. God must not be paying attention. Do not think that God does not orchestrate such things for one person. And don't think for a moment this morning that it might not be you. That he might not be orchestrating such things in your life to bring you to a place with a people to hear about his son. You think you've got plans for your life and you know why things are happening. I I did too. I thought I knew exactly how my adult life was going to work, what it was going to take, what decisions I needed to make, what ladders I needed to climb to do what I thought God was calling me to do. You have the same things, but you know what? Do you really know why you're here? I mean, you came here because you thought that school had the particular major or the particular professor that you wanted to learn from because that's what interested you. But God has much bigger plans. Have you ever considered what he's orchestrating in your life? Why this job in this city was offered for you? Why he has you in this place or in this neighborhood? Why he has you connected to these people and why you befriended this certain group? Have you ever considered what God might be orchestrating for you in your life right now to bring you to a place just like this? Second question, they want to all move that quickly from this story in Acts. Do you understand what the scriptures actually say about Jesus? Do you understand what the scriptures actually say about Jesus? This Ethiopian eunuch, he was a sincerely curious man. He went all the way from his home in Ethiopia, which back then is probably closer now to what modern day Sudan is. He went all the way from his home to Jerusalem to worship the God of the Israelites. He he was what the Bible would call a God-fearer. He had understanding about this God, but not real knowledge or experience, but he set out on his way to go to Jerusalem to worship this God. That's just something that if he had read all of the Bible, most just wouldn't have done, especially not a eunuch, because he would have been fully aware that according to the law, 
A eunuch couldn't go into the temple to worship God because of the dismemberment and disfigurement of his body. But he went. There was a sincere desire to understand, a sincere desire to know. I mean, why go all that way if you're not at least curious? And so here in the story, Philip finds him on his way home with a scroll of the Bible opened up, the scroll of Isaiah opened up, and he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And Philip has the opportunity to ask him, do you know what, what you're reading? Do you get it? And he's reading this story of such rejection and humiliation and sacrifice and, and suffering, but yet exaltation. He says, how am I supposed to know unless, unless somebody just helps me? And some of you are, are in a similar position to this Ethiopian eunuch. You're sincerely curious. You may have been here for a couple of years, continuing to read, continuing to pray, continuing to listen, but not yet fully understanding or knowing what it is you are doing. Your heart's open. You just need answers. You just need understanding. So Philip, beginning with Isaiah 53, begins to explain to this sincere, this curious, this Egyptian, Ethiopian Gentile, he begins to explain to him the truth about Jesus. And that's what we're going to do in the last few minutes. If you've got your Bibles, go back to Isaiah chapter 53. Let's see what Philip may have been able to tell this Ethiopian eunuch about Jesus from Isaiah chapter 53. And let's trust God that as we do it, for many of you, sincere, curious, let's just trust that God would do by his spirit and for his glory what only he can do and that he would open up the eyes of your heart like he did this Ethiopian to see Jesus for who he is. Let's read it together and see what he has to say. First thing that we'd see from Isaiah chapter 53 is that God will reveal Jesus. He will reveal this servant. He will send this servant that Isaiah is talking about, and it is Jesus, but we're gonna reject him. But we're gonna reject him. Look at what he says. Verse two, it says, for he, talking about Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. We know from the story of Jesus, he was born in a manger, in a stable, behind an inn, because there was no room for him and his parents to actually find a place in the town to stay. Most likely, they didn't have the resources to get one anyway. And from there, he grew up in a small town, Nazareth, what would, what would be considered today like a country town or a backwoods town in a time like that. He was a carpenter. There was nothing about his stature, nothing about his lineage that the people around him got him any extra credit or any extra measure. Physically, he would have walked by you and you wouldn't have given him a second look. Nothing about his form, nothing about his person would have drawn your attention. There's no chance that if it were today that Jesus would be getting his 15 minutes of fame on, on the magazine or on the newspapers or on the internet just for being himself because he's so pretty that we'd want to look at him. And we want to know what he goes to see, what he listens to, what car does he drive, what clothes does he wear. He's just so pretty. Not Jesus. Nothing about his form that would have drawn our attention. But even more than that, it was the way he lived his life that was so hard for people to deal with. The way he understood life. The way he understood pride. The way he dealt with humility. The way he understood possessions. The way he understood sacrifice. The way he understood giving. It just didn't fit with the way that people around him looked at life. Uh, John Piper says it better than I'll ever say it. He says this. He says, we didn't feel endorsed by Jesus. Just listen to this. We didn't feel endorsed by Jesus. 
He was so lowly and unimpressive that our aspirations for power and reputation felt evil. You hear that? His happy poverty made our wanting more and more feel so foolish. His willingness to suffer for others made our craving for comforts feel so selfish. So, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, made us so uncomfortable to hide our faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. God will reveal him, but we're going to reject him. God shows him, but we send him away. The second thing we see from this song, and this really gets to the heart of this entire story. This really gets down to the essence of what it means to be a Christian, what Christianity really is. Jesus, he will suffer for our sin as our substitute. God reveals him and we reject him. But yet Jesus will suffer. He will suffer for your sin as your substitute. And just listen to this. Surely, verse four, surely he has borne whose griefs? You can say it. We talk here. Our Hour. That puts you in the picture. This isn't something that happened centuries ago. Isaiah is putting you squarely in the middle of this text. God, in inspiring the prophet Isaiah, in writing this particular song here, he's putting you squarely in the middle of this text. Let's just change the pronoun. Let's make it mine. Let's just make it personal now instead of plural. Let's make it personal. Surely he has borne whose griefs? Mine. Carried whose sorrows? Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for whose transgressions? Mine. He was crushed for my iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought me peace. And with his wounds, we, I, you, are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us ever wondered what the essence of Christianity really is, here it is. If you've ever wondered what's at the heart of it all, I mean, you boil it all down, what does it get down to? It's right here, and you can sum it up in one word. Substitution. Substitution. Isaiah says, you and I, each one of us, you, me, every single one of us in here is like a stupid sheep. That's a flattering picture, isn't it? You wake up feeling like that anytime? I'm a dumb sheep. He says, in fact, that's what we are. We're like dumb, wandering sheep. Each and every single one of us wanders off on our own way. We think we know what's best. And here's the thing. We substitute God's will and God's ways for our own. You know what? I'm going to wander off on over here because I think I know what's best for me. We're going to substitute God with ourselves. All of us like dumb sheep, wandering off on our own way, thinking that we know what's best. The Bible calls this substitution Sin. Every single time in thought, in affection, in motivation, and in deed, we substitute our wisdom for God's, or God's wisdom for our own. We substitute God's desires for our own. Anytime we do that, the Bible calls that sin. And each and every single one of us do it. And the story's been clear from the very beginning. The consequence for this substitution, for this sin, is death. But here's what Isaiah is saying. 
And this gets down to the heart. That's not the only substitution that occurs. God had planned from before eternity to send this servant, this servant we know as Jesus, to live the life that you and I could never live because of our sin. And you know what we did for him? You know what we did as he did that? We esteemed him not. We rejected him for it. He lived the life that God created us to live that because of our sin, we could never live. And you know what? We hated him for it. But he didn't stop. He not only lived the life that we couldn't live and can't live because of our sin, Jesus died the death that you and I deserve to die. This is the second substitution that happens in the gospel. I mean, this is really where it boils down. This is the essence of the Christian faith right here. In sin, we substitute ourselves for God. Our ways for God's ways. Our, way, our wants for God's wants. Our will for God's wills. We substitute ourselves in God's place. But here's the essence. God then substitutes himself for us. He doesn't leave us there in our wandering, in our ignorance. God puts himself where only you and I deserve to be because of our sin. He bore whose griefs? Yours. Mine. Ours. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced. Spear in his side as he hung on the most gruesome form of execution and torture known to man, a Roman cross. Pierced in the side for whose transgressions? Ours, mine, yours. Crushed. Literal word there means ground down. Crushed under the weight of whose sin and sorrow? Ours, ours. God put himself where only you and I deserve to be. Theologians called this great act that happened right here imputation. I'll give you a fancy word. Imputation. That simply means charges are now credited to someone else's account. On the cross, God takes the charges that you and I have stacked up because of our sin. The charges that each and every single one of us has rightly earned because of our sin. And God imputes them, takes them, and puts them on Jesus, upon this servant. On the cross, all of those sins, all of those sorrows, all of those transgressions, transgressions, all of those misgivings, all of those misdeeds, all of those lusts, all of those moments of pride, all of that envy, all of it, every single last piece of it, he puts it on his son. Your charges put on his son. God charged our infinite debt due to us because of our sin. He charged it on a substitute. Paul will tell the church in Corinth some years later that God made him who knew no sin, who had no sin, Jesus, who lived the life that we couldn't live because of our sin, the one who had no sin, God made him who had no sin to be sin, not just to know it, but to be it. He took your sin, your sorrows, your transgressions, and put them on him. Why? So that through him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the essence of the Christian faith. If you've ever wondered what it's all about, it's all about this substitution. At that cross on Good Friday, God expresses the fullness of his justice. The fullness of his wrath is exhausted on the body of his son for our sin. But at the same time, God himself as our substitute endures the fullness of his wrath. Endures the fullness of his justice in our place. 
And in that, he enables you and I, sinners like you and I, to be saved. In his holy justice on the cross, justice is not overlooked. In the death of Christ on the cross, in our place, for our sin, the justice of God is not overlooked. It's condemned. He died. The wages for sin have always been death. And God took what we deserved and put it on someone else. He put it on his son. And the fullness of his justice and wrath was poured out on him so that in every way possible, God remains just. And God remains righteous. And he condemned sin in his son. But at the same time, on that cross, God's holy and eternal love for sinners is not overlooked. How? He paid our price in our place so that we could be saved, so that we could be redeemed. Is God just towards sin? Does he compromise anything in his character? Is there any compromise to God's justice? No, look at the cross. Exhausted the full measure of his wrath against sin on his son. Is he really loving? Is he really merciful? towards those who continuously rebel against him, look at the cross. He substituted his own son to pay the price for your sin so that he could bring you to himself, so that you could be brought to him. This is the essence of the gospel. This is the essence of the good news about the person of Jesus. But Isaiah's not done. Just let's keep reading. We're gonna run out of time. Let's keep reading. Verse seven. Isaiah says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He wasn't overpowered on the way to the cross. You gotta get this. He wasn't kicking and screaming and dragging his heels and being forced against his will. Jesus chose not to fight back. His trial, his execution, they were unjust in every human way imaginable. Nothing just about what happened to him. But it was his choice to die in your place for your sin. And he was silent before his executioners. And Isaiah makes something really clear that we've got to get clear in our mind. We can't spend a lot of time with it right here, but you've got to be clear with it if it's all going to make any sense and if it's going to really be good news on an Easter Sunday. He really did die. Isaiah said he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus didn't faint. He didn't fall asleep out of exhaustion for a really long time. He couldn't just hold his breath so long that they could wrap him up in garments and cover him with spices and oil and put him in a tomb. He didn't just have really good lung capacity. He wasn't switched. Nobody snatched him off the cross and stuck a corpse from a grave in his place. He really did die. The weight of your transgression and the fullness of the justice of God was exhausted in his body on that cross and he died. And he was wrapped up in burial clothes. And he was placed in a tomb and he was there for three days. He really did die. But that's a good Friday, right? Keep waiting for me to get to Easter. It's Easter Sunday. 
Isn't Easter about an empty tomb and a resurrection? That's all Good Friday stuff. Or maybe Easter's about rabbits that lay colored eggs. No. Isaiah didn't stop the song and stop the story there. 700 years before Jesus would walk the face of the earth and this prophecy would be fulfilled, Isaiah was telling his people, pointing God's people forward, that death will not be the end of the story. You won't find the word resurrection anywhere in this text, but it's all over the passage, and I'm going to show you. It's everywhere in this song that that is not the end of the story. If he was still in the tomb wrapped up, go home. Go home. The Apostle Paul will say to that same church in Corinth years later that if Jesus did not get out of that tomb, if he did not rise from the dead, if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't be angry at us for what we believe. You should pity us because we're the biggest fools in the world. But that's not what happened. And Isaiah was telling God's people, that's not what's gonna happen. Look at what he says. You see it most clearly in the first stanza and the last stanza of this song. You see this picture of what's gonna happen after this substitutionary sacrificial death. That the story goes on, there's more to it. And it's so great. Here's what I'm gonna do. Instead of reading it because of time, I'm gonna pull out all the propositions and put them in a logical order. And I want you just to hear what God is saying through Isaiah about how this story ends and what it means for you and I. I want you just to hear God's word on this, and I'll make as as few comments about it as I can, but I can't really hold back. Verse 10, it was God's will to crush Jesus. Don't make this mistake. It was no accident. It was all part of the purposeful plan of God. It was the will of God and the plan of God to crush his son. Now listen to what happened to him. When Jesus offers himself as a guilt offering, which he did, On the cross, in his body, he offered himself, as we already saw, as a guilt offering for your sin. Verse 11 says that out of the anguish of his soul, the death, the anguish of his soul, the holding on and carrying of your sorrows and your transgressions that brought him to this type of anguish, out of this anguish and this death. And verse 12 says that because Jesus bore the sins of many and out of his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. So because of his sacrificial substitutionary death that was all part of the purposeful plan of God, here's what will happen. Look at this, verse 10. Jesus will prolong his days. It's not the end. Wrapped up, put in a tomb. It's not the end. Isaiah said some 700 years earlier, because he was willing and obedient to go to death for your sin and because he was substitutionary substitutionarily, I should say, perfect, and God accepts him as that sacrifice, he's gonna prolong his days. Death doesn't have the final say over him. Dead men don't prolong their days. He is going to prolong his days. Verse 10 also says the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I mean, what was the will of the Lord? We just heard that part of the will of the Lord was to crush him, but why? From the very beginning, God said he had a plan. That one day, he would achieve victory. Victory over the one who from the very beginning deceived us into thinking that we had the right to put ourselves in God's place. The very one who deceived Adam and Eve in the very beginning and sin entered into this whole story. He said one day, one day, one is gonna come from the seed of the woman. And this one is gonna come that Isaiah calls this servant, this suffering servant. He is gonna do what you can never do. And through him, the head of that serpent will be crushed even though he's constantly snapping at your heels. The will of the Lord from the beginning has always been to display his glory, to hold up his character, to display his righteousness and his justice alongside of his love and alongside of his mercy. And the way he does that is through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. All of it, all of it goes to prosper God's will in the hand of Christ. What else he says? I keep talking, sorry. Verse 10. 
Jesus shall see his offspring. Dead people don't get to get up and see their offspring. Jesus will see his offspring. Those who, like sheep, were wandering all in their own ways, who God opens up the eyes of their hearts to see the fullness of what's going on here in the person of Jesus, those people who at once had a right to fear God because of their sin now become offspring of God, now become adopted into the family of God called sons and daughters, and Jesus gets to see them. He's alive and he's watching it. He's watching it. Verse 11 says that Jesus will make many to be accounted righteous, through this life, through this death, through this resurrection, many, those who see him and place their faith and trust in him, many will be accounted righteous, justified. Those charges that were against you because of your sin that were placed on him, gone. Gone. By faith in him, there is therefore now, Paul says, no condemnation, no right, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no right for you to be judged for this sin ever again. Those charges were placed on Jesus and he took them in his body on that cross. When you trust him and you stand before God, there is no charge to be brought against you. He has already judged it once in his son, fully and completely. He makes many, many righteous and justified. Not only that, but verse 11 says, Jesus bears your iniquities. All that sin, all that sorrow, all that transgression, all of it, poured out together on his body. He bears it in your place. And here's what that means now. Because he suffered in your place for your sin, God accepted it as fully and completely sufficient for your sin, and God raised him from the dead, it means you never have to carry it again. You never have to carry that sorrow again. He bore it on his body, on the cross, and in a sense, he continues to bear it. He shows that by his resurrection, you never have to bear it again. Not only that, he's so much. Look, man. Verse 12, Jesus continues to make intercession for you, a transgressor, a sinner. He intercedes for you in a sense on that cross as your substitute for your sin, but now as the exalted and risen king and savior, he continues to intercede for you in the presence of God the Father. Jesus is your intercessor. But there's more. Look at this, verse 11. All of this together Jesus sees the work of his sacrifice. He sees the work. He sees the cost. He sees the life. He sees the rejection. He sees the humiliation. He sees the scorn. He sees the pain. He sees the blood. He sees the crowns. He sees the the nails. He sees the sword. He sees the spear. He sees it all. All that it cost him to do what he did. He sees it all. He's satisfied. He sees how his sacrifice enabled many to be made righteous. He sees how his sacrifice is enabling many who are wandering on their own ways to be brought back to God, to be called his own offspring. He sees the purposes and plans of God and the glory of God and the character of God upheld through his obedience and he's satisfied. He is not up there wishing there was another way. He, he's not up there in heaven going, I have all things. Why, why was it that? He sees it. He's overjoyed by it. He's satisfied. But now I gotta go back to that first stanza. Chapter 52, 15, Isaiah says that nations and kings that never knew him, peoples who were separated from the people of God in this time, Gentiles, nations and kings who had never knew him or understood him, never knew what was going on or understood what Israel was doing, they will have their sight restored and they will see Jesus for who he is. Jesus will be seen by every people 
every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation for who he is. God is opening up the eyes of the entire world to see who this servant really is. And because of that, chapter 52 says that Jesus will be high and lifted up, greatly exalted, and kings and nations will shut their mouths in reverent silence because of him. Jesus is not suffering anymore. You gotta get this. His offering for sin on that cross and in that tomb was sufficient to pay the price for every single one of your sins. It was sufficient and it was complete right now. Right now, if we could see, if somehow this whole roof would peel back and we could just get a glimpse like Isaiah, like Elijah did of what was going on up there, we would see Jesus exalted on a throne, fully and utterly satisfied as he looks down and he gets to see the work that he has accomplished being played out in the lives of many all around the world. He's enjoying the sheer satisfaction of his sacrifice enabling many people who were apart from God, many people who were wandering out along their own way, stupid sheep like us, being made righteous, being made sons and daughters of God. He's on the throne and he's overjoyed. That's what we would see if we got to see it. He is alive. He is alive and he is satisfied. And because of his life and his death and now his resurrection, you and I, for all of us who place our faith in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done, we're justified before God. You and I literally made righteous before God, right standing with God, adopted now, offspring, offspring, brothers and sisters with Christ, brothers and sisters of one another, adopted into the family of God. No longer under the crushing burden of guilt, that bag, that weight, that strap, it's gone. He took it upon himself. He carried it in our place, carried it all the way to the tomb where it pressed him down and he got up. It couldn't keep him down. And we're no longer under the burden of it. Verse 12 uses this particular language of a victorious conqueror. Because of his life, death, and his resurrection, God through Isaiah says that he's gonna share the spoils of his victory with the many, with those sheep that he's now brought to himself, with that new offspring and those that are being made righteous. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus conquered the enemies that you and I could never conquer. We could never defeat sin. We could never defeat Satan. We can never defeat death. But the Bible says that any of us who have placed our faith in the person and work of Christ at one point, we were dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. But God, through Christ, has made us alive together with him, having forgiven us of all those trespasses, having forgiven us of all those charges. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus conquered the enemies we can never conquer in ourselves. He conquered sin, he conquered Satan, and he conquered death. And because of that, because of that, here's one little bit of spoil, one little bit of, of treasure that those of us who place our faith in Jesus get to enjoy. You ready for this? 
we no longer have to live under the fear of death. You no longer have to live under the fear of death. You got to get this. You no longer have to live under the fear of death. Some of the writer of Hebrews will say years later after this, and then we'll wrap it up. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, we're human, right? Those sheep that were so astray that are now offspring of God, we're human. We have flesh and blood. He himself, talking about Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, became flesh and blood, became human. Why? So that through death, through his death, he would destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Apart from Christ, you and I live every single day of our life under the slavery of the fear of death. You might not admit it, but we can see it in everything you do. Every single one of us is driven by this fear of death, this, this knowledge that's internal in all of us that one day our clock is gonna run out. We try to manage it, try to mitigate it, get surgeries, take pills, change jobs, trying to run away from this fear of death. We can't do it. And in fact, the New York Times writer, Ann Patchett, she said this, it killed me this week, listen to this. She said, staving off our own death is one of our greatest national pastimes. Whether it's exercise, checking our cholesterol, and she's a female writer, so having a mammogram, guys, getting a prostate exam, same thing, probably enjoyed on the same level. We're always, always, she said, hedging bets against our mortality. So what does Easter do for that? On that cross, in that empty tomb, Jesus Christ defeated the one who has the power of death over us. You and I no longer have to live as slaves to this fear. Jesus delivered us, set us free, disentangled us from this fear that drives so much of our life. So many of our decisions. When Jesus rose from that tomb on that first Easter Sunday, he rose victorious, having defeated the enemies that you and I could never defeat. And now for those of us who are found in him, we no longer have to live as slaves to that fear anymore. We no longer have to be afraid of death anymore because we know the rest of the story. So here's how I'm gonna wrap it up for you. Third and final question. I told you there were three questions that were gonna frame this whole thing. Third and final question. What prevents you from receiving this good news? What actually prevents you from receiving this good news? I mean, think back to Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip asked him if he understood what he was reading. And from Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. No sales pitch. No high pressure moments. No closing windows that you gotta slide in on or the window's gonna close and the opportunity's gone. Nothing there, but something was going on in the heart of that Ethiopian eunuch. Without Philip having to say anything to him, he knew there was a decision that he had to make, and he made it. And he said, what prevents me? What prevents me from responding? What prevents me from responding and believing and in this sense being baptized? It's the same question that you have to answer this morning. The Spirit of God was working in the heart of this man, and he was able to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus right there in Isaiah 53. So why not you? Well, you've been here for five years or five minutes why not you what what prevents you this morning 
me close with this. I, I want to read this to you, and then we'll pray. This is from another pastor, a theologian named Ray Ortland. Wonderful, wonderful commentary on Isaiah. I'm going to let him close this out. He says, right now, Jesus is saying to you, I do not want you to bear your burden one moment longer. Let my chastisement give you peace. Let my stripes heal you. We are all like stupid sheep, wandering off from him through our own futile self-remedies and self-righteous excuses. Who in here can deny it? But look at what God's done. God has laid on Christ the iniquity of all of us. Believe it and entrust your guilt to him. The cross and the empty tomb are not dreamy religious ideals. They're a power and they're working. The one who descended to unimaginable depths is now enjoying the spoils of complete victory. He's actively saving guilty people today. He treats transgressors as his friends and shares his victory with his former enemies. He stands before the Father making intercession for the very ones who drove him to his death. His cross and his empty tomb are a power that evil cannot conquer or even understand, but to God they're everything. Nothing will ever rob Jesus of his hard-won right to justify you, the ungodly. Who else can love you so miraculously and helpfully? Who else would willingly serve as your scapegoat? What are you waiting for? The guilt that men are never able to cleanse in spite of their sacrifices and their penance, all of their remorse and vain regrets, God himself wipes away. And men are at once freed from their past and are transformed. You can be freed from your past, but Jesus is the only way. His sacrifice was good enough for God. Why shouldn't it be good enough for you? Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, I now pray, along with your son Jesus, our suffering servant, who right now is interceding at your right hand, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit this morning in great power, in great power to convict us of our sin, to comfort us with the righteousness of your son Jesus and that right now, from this very moment, right now, for the moments and days and weeks to come, that you will continue to work to save all that you are calling to yourself. From the youngest in this room to the oldest, God, may today be the day of salvation for many in this place. May this be the day that we turn from ourselves, from our ways, and we turn to you, to entrust ourselves to you, to follow you all of our days. God, I just ask as sincerely as I can that you would make it so, that your spirit would work through your word, that we would see your glory in the face of your son, in whose name we pray, amen.